bags are packed, are you ready to go? This time tomorrow we'll be on the road Riding with you in the sunnier days I wouldn't want it any other way Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Corinne Nidja podcast. I'm your host Corinne Nidja and today we are talking to one of my heroes. <laughs> I have to say it's been a fangirl moment because I always love to speak to the doctors who have played integral roles in my own journey of recovery from multiple sclerosis, fibromyalgia, and I'm still in the journey of overcoming food addiction. Dr. Alan Goldhammer has been one of those integral people in my own health journey. So today, Dr. Alan Goldhammer, the founder of True North Health Center in the United States, is on the show. I have to say it was way, way more fun speaking to Dr. Goldhammer and hearing him, the way he delivers his information was very direct and very confronting. But I often found myself just bursting out laughing because it was, <laughs> you'll just have to hear it for yourself. Anyway, if you don't know about Dr. Alan Goldhammer and his work, he is the author well, co-author with Dr. Doug Lyle of The Pleasure Trap, which is an incredible book for those of you who might be listening and who may struggle with food addiction or compulsive eating. Just talking about the science of why we're addicted to food and why we struggle around foods that are high in meat, dairy, eggs, salt, oil, and sugar, and other processed foods. Uh, it's just a fascinating biological, psychological look at how we're wired and why we respond to food in that way. And once you know why you're eating this way and the shame is kind of stripped away, it makes it so much easier moving forward to make different choices in your own relationship with food. So I love that book, The Pleasure Trap. Now, it, the link to where you can get that online on Amazon will be in the show notes. So click on the show notes if you want to find the link to purchase Dr. Goldhammer's book, The Pleasure Trap. He also has three vegan cookbooks, which sound delicious, and their links will be in the show notes as well. And you can find everything you need to know about today's guest at healthpromoting.com. That's health, H-E-A-L-T-H, promoting, P-R-O-M-O-T-I-N-G.com, where you can find Dr. Alan Goldhammer's clinic, the true, obviously the True North Health Center, information about water fasting, what it's like staying at True North Health Center, case studies, the kitchen, media, you know, staff, accommodation and fees, what to expect, the overview. There's so much stuff there. There's so much stuff. And you can also, which I want to mention now, even though it was mentioned later on in the podcast, you can also at that website, healthpromoting.com, get a free call with Dr. Goldhammer himself. No cost phone call where he will talk to you about your health. You can talk to him about your health problems and he will give you his own recommendations, talk to you about the center 
or see what's in your area that might be of benefit to you. It's just such a great opportunity if you do have any kind of food addiction problems, you have excess weight you want to lose, a chronic health issue that you're struggling with, definitely worth heading to healthpromoting.com to contact Dr. Alan Goldhammer yourself and have a chat with him. It sounds like such a brilliant opportunity that is yeah, too good to miss out on. Otherwise, you can also find him at fasting.org where you can learn all about the benefits of fasting for weight loss and disease prevention and reversal. Um, so head over to fasting.org as well. We talked about so many, so many things that I'm so excited for you to listen to in this episode. And yeah, please stick around and listen to the whole thing because it's, it's just a great 45 minutes of Dr. Goldhammer delivering just incredible point after incredible point. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you. I'll see you all at the end of the show. Bye. Hello, Alan, and welcome to the show. It's nice to be here. I've given you a little bit of a of a introduction in the intro to this episode, but if anyone, I'm sure that most people who are listening to this show has heard of you, has read your book, your co-authored book, The Pleasure Trap, before and has heard of True North, but if they haven't, if you want to just give us a bit of your background, that'd be awesome. Well, sure. The True North Health Center is an integrative facility in California that specializes in the use of diet, specifically a whole plant food SOS-free diet and medically supervised water fasting and helping people that have issues recover their health. And so we treat a lot of people with conditions of dietary excess like high blood pressure, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, conditions like lymphoma. And we use diet and fasting to help the body do what it does best, and that's heal itself. Wow. How did, how did True North come about? How did the center come about? Because it's, it's a place that I've always been fascinated by, and I'm sure many people have been. But where did it start? When I came back, I went to uh, osteopathic college in Australia, got a chance to study with Alec Burton, who specialized in water fasting, and came back in 1984. My wife, Dr. Jennifer Morano, and I founded the True North Health Center. We've been operating it ever since for 35 years. We've had over 20,000 people undergo medically supervised fasting during that time. And currently, it's grown quite a bit. We have uh, about 70 employees, a dozen of which are clinicians. We see uh, somewhere around 12 to 1,400 uh, admissions a year for fasting, and uh, we're uh, involved with clinical research. Our True North Health Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit research foundation whose mission is public education and also research regarding medically supervised water-only fasting. And we've been publishing a number of papers recently. We've got a number of studies that are going on right now in trying to figure out how to use fasting better, um, how it works, and uh, you know what we can do to, to be more effective with it. So did you discover fasting when you were here in Australia, or did you, was that just something that has evolved as the center has developed? We discovered fasting reading books by Herbert Shelton and others, other natural hygienists that had used fasting successfully to overcome diseases associated with dietary excess. And it was Dr. Burton in Australia that actually had the most experience in using fasting, and so I was able to convince him to let me come and be uh, an intern and resident in his facility. Um, that was back in 1983. Wow, because I think still a lot of people find the idea of fasting 
ex- extreme, um, for want of a better word. Uh, could you just explain a bit about how fasting works to those people and why it works? Well, sure. You know, people are getting fat and sick because they eat too much and eat too much of the wrong foods. And so they develop high blood pressure and diabetes and autoimmune diseases. And so it's not surprising to find out that if you want to get rid of the consequences of dietary excess, not eating might allow you to do that. And fasting is, in fact, the most efficient way of giving the body a chance to mobilize and eliminate those accumulated metabolic products that occur from dietary excess. And so we've taken this very ancient practice and learned to apply it in a modern environment where people are exposed to something very unnatural, which is excess. In the world of ancient ancestors, our people evolved in an environment of scarcity. It was hard to get enough to eat and not get eaten. And today in the modern world, it's very easy to overeat. In fact, it's almost uh, the most difficult thing people do not to overeat because of the pleasure trap. That is the artificial stimulation of dopamine in the brain that comes when you put chemicals in the feet of animals or people. And the chemicals that humans put in their feet is oil, salt, and sugar. When you put salt, oil, and sugar in the food of animals, they overeat and they get fat. And the same thing happens to people. When you take people that are overweight or have dietary excess diseases and fast them, the body unwinds it. And so it's just a very efficient and effective way of giving the body a chance to unwind those consequences that come from being drugged by chemicals added to their feed. Wow. That that is a very, very succinct way of of saying that. And I, I have tried fasting for four days was my longest ever fast, but you do quite long fast. And for many people, that's like frightening, daunting. Like, like as you say, we were, we were, scarcity was a thing before, you know, industrialization. But now how do you? Well, people are misunderstand fasting. They think if they get on a plane in Sydney and they were to fly to California, they would die somewhere over New York from starvation if they didn't eat. And the reality is that even a skinny male can fast up towards 70 days if they needed to. So in a, in a resting state, fasting works very well. It's a safe and, and can be effective process. Um, if the uh, patients that are using fasting are chosen correctly. Now, it's true. Fasting is not for everybody. And not everybody should be doing long-term fasting. But uh, when you have appropriately selected patients, fasting can be one of the most effective ways of giving the body a chance to unwind itself. And that is including long-term fasting. We fast people up to 40 days. So Moses, David, Elijah, Jesus, and our patients fast up to 40 days. We tell our patients they're in good company. <laughs> yeah, that is very good company. So who shouldn't fast? Well, people that are not ready to do dangerous and radical things like eat well, exercise, go to bed on time and get their needs met should not fast because fasting will not work long-term unless you're willing to do those kinds of radical interventions like get healthy. So people looking for magic uh, treatments or rapid weight loss or something should probably pick other strategies. We suggest people use fasting, uh, limit uh, fasting to people that have uh, situations that support fasting and motivations that make sense, that is the desire to actually get healthy. Now, that's different than conventional medical treatment. For example, if you have high blood pressure or diabetes or autoimmune diseases or you have lymphoma and you go to a medical doctor, they're going to tell you, well, here, take these drugs. And they're going to tell you, you'll need to take these drugs forever. You'll be on drugs the rest of your life because they're promising you if you do what you're told, you'll never get well. You'll be sick forever. For people that don't want to be sick forever and don't want to take drugs that cause chronic cough, fatigue, impotence, and premature death, they could do something radical, 
Radical comes from the word radicus, which I believe has its roots, meaning the root or cause. And a radical intervention for, say, high blood pressure would be the fast. If you fast long enough, blood pressure normalizes. If you feed well enough, it stays normal. And so that's what we advocate. Medically supervised fasting, where we appropriately select a patient, history exam and lab, monitor the patient twice a day, wean their medications appropriately, initiate water-only fasting, and then follow it with a whole plant food SOS-free diet. SOS, of course, is the international symbol of danger, and it stands for salt, oil, and sugar. SOS are the chemicals added to food, which is why people develop these problems to begin with. I actually really love that. I'm just writing it down. I love that acronym SOS and SOS being the danger thing. I never thought of that. And it's- well, we wanted a way to describe a vegan diet that was healthy because many vegan diets are not healthy. Coca-Cola, Oreo cookies, and French fries could all be vegan, but they aren't necessarily healthy. Vegan just means no animal foods. Well, that's a start, not an end. So yes, we get rid of the meat, fish, fries, and dairy products, but you also have to get rid of the salt, oil, and sugar. And so it has to be a whole plant food, SOS-free diet to meet the standards that we're recommending. And so I just watched Game Changers on Monday, and it was a really, really great, fantastic documentary to watch. And speaking of that, we saw the oil in the, in the blood vials in that documentary I just wanted to talk to you about oil and how oil affects the body because we've mentioned it in this show previously, but if people listen to this for the first time or if they haven't heard about what, how oil impacts on the bodies, I'd love to hear it from you. Well, salt, oil, and sugar all contribute to dietary excess. So oil is particularly efficient. It's got seven calories per gram. Uh, so if you're trying to get fat, there's probably no more efficient way of just eating a bunch of oil or foods cooked in oil. Um, you do need essential fatty acids, and you get all the fat you need from your food, just like you need carbohydrates, but you get all the carbohydrates you need from your food, and you need salt, but you get all the salt you need from your food. You don't have to add sugar, salt, and oil in order to get enough. You just need to eat a diet derived exclusively from whole plant foods. And when you choose to use oil or fried foods, what you're doing is you're fooling your satiety mechanisms, getting a highly concentrated food byproduct. And it, the, like Dr. McDougall says, the fat you eat is the fat you wear. So you might as well just take it and rub it all over your belly and hips where it's going to end up. At least then you could wash it off and not carry it around all week. <laughs> Can I ask you a question which probably is a bit off topic and I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer me. But you know people put moisturizer, which is like fat, on their bodies in the forms of skin lotions and potions. And the skin is an organ and it's absorbable. Would you recommend that someone who was already consuming an SOS-free diet also avoid applying those types of facial skin care creams? Well, I think, you know, caloric absorption through the skin is real. There is some, but it's relatively limited. It's not an efficient source of caloric adoption. I don't think people are necessarily gaining weight because they put, you know, uh, moisturizers on, on their skin. But what would be the best way of moisturizing the skin, ideally, is from the inside out. And so that would mean eating a whole plant food SOS-free diet and, you know, treating the skin uh, gently and, and, and not having to be as reliant on so many exogenous agents in order to maintain skin health. Although I don't object if a person is using a moisturizer or some kind of thing to help uh, deal with the exposure to the environment or drying or whatever, I, I don't see that as a big uh, problem. I'm sure many of the companies selling big gobs of materials to people um, would be aghast because they think, you know, that's the only way to maintain health. But, but health, uh, including the organ, your biggest organ of the body, the skin, most important thing isn't what you put on from the outside, it's what's coming in from the inside. 
And for, so for people who wanted to have healthy, glowing skin, like many, many women out there, I'm sure, and men as well, but do you think, what kind of foods would you recommend that they eat to make their skin healthy? Well, yeah, that's a good point. For people that want really healthy skin, they would want to eat a whole plant food diet that's free of salt, oil, and sugar. And they'd want to, you know, avoid the meat, fish, fowl, eggs, dairy products, oil, salt, and sugar. Basically, it's pretty simple. If you just tell people, if you're thinking about, should I eat something or not, go inside yourself and ask yourself, do I really, really, really want whatever it is? And if the answer is truly yes, you know. You can't have it. You get nothing. <laughs> you really, really want it because you're an addict. Nobody ever woke up and told their wife or husband, oh, my God, we're, we're out of carrots. I've got to go down to the store right now. I can't wait till daylight. I've got to have them. You know, no, you, you like carrots, but you're not going to go kill somebody for them. You know, ask somebody to stop eating chocolate or one of these other drug-like foods, and you may get a completely different response. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so t- on the topic of food addiction, which is basically your book taught me that I was a, had an issue with well, your book and Andrew Taylor. Hi, Andrew Taylor. But taught me that I had an issue with food addiction but I don't think I think that still the concept of being a food addict is a relatively new concept for people. Can you kind of def- explain a bit about the pleasure trap and what's happening to people and why we are addicted to food? If you're an alcoholic, what's going on? You're artificially stimulating dopamine in your brain. With alcohol, it's an artificial stimulation. You become dependent on it. Soon you drink not just to feel good, but you have to keep drinking to avoid feeling very bad. The hallmark of addiction or withdrawal. If you use cocaine adequately, you know, incessantly, you will become addicted to the artificial stimulation dopamine from cocaine in your brain. If you're using other drugs, same kind of thing happens. We recognize that. We don't tell alcoholics, well, just drink less because it doesn't work. They have trouble doing it. They don't say, well, put your alcohol in a smaller cup. You won't be a drunk anymore. Use a spoon to drink your alcohol. Put your spoon down between each slurp and you won't be a drunk anymore. We don't tell alcoholics to drink more moderately. We tell alcoholics what? Stop drinking. You don't do well with alcohol. Now, does everybody that has a single drink become a drunk? No. Some people can have a drink, put it down. But if you're a drunk, it's not you. You, It's not like you didn't try to quit. You can't. So you have to develop a different strategy, not a moderation strategy, but an abstinence strategy. So let's take a look at food. People like the Faults, fatty, salty, sugary foods because it stimulates dopamine production in the brain. And if you eat enough of it long enough, you can become addicted to it. Where if you stop doing it, you feel very bad. So you're not just keep eating to feel good. You're eating. You have to keep eating in order to avoid the withdrawal effects. Is it as powerful as alcohol? Maybe not. But it's still the same dopamine cascade. It's the same neurochemical cascade. So do we tell overweight people, look, you don't do well with these highly processed foods. You need to stop it. No, we say... Well, put your food on a smaller plate. Cut your food into little bites. Chew more. Put your fork down between each bite. You won't be fat anymore. And does that work? It doesn't work at all. No, what works for people that are overweight is the same thing that works for any other addict. It's to stop fooling their brain with the chemicals that are making them fat, sick, and miserable. Can some people have cheese and chocolate and not become overweight? Yes. But if you're overweight, it's not you. You're not the person that does well with that. So you'd be better off saying, why don't I just try eating a whole plant food diet without salt, oil, and sugar and watch myself if I'm a male lose three pounds a week or females two pounds a week down to my optimal weight. 
And if you get to that level and you don't like being thin and healthy, you can go back to eating greasy, fatty, slimy, processed, dead, decaying flesh like everybody else. And I promise you, you'll get your fat back and then your friends might like you again. <laughs> so sorry. That was very good. <laughs> well, it's frustrating because people want to pretend that the, the problem is psychological. And I'm arguing it's mostly biological. Okay. The, the thing is, you don't, you don't psychologically determine your satiety mechanisms. That's inborn to you. And so to blame people that they're damaged goods and that's why they're fat is really disingenuous. People are overweight because they have a little bit less satiety uh, mechanism or you know, sensitivity than somebody else. Most people are all eating more or less the same kinds of crap. But if you happen to have sensitive satiety mechanisms, you'll eat a little bit less. You'll be less ten tendency to develop obesity. If your satiety mechanisms are you know, much less sensitive, you're going to get fat unless you choose to stop taking the drug-like effect of the salt, oil, and sugar. And guess what? No matter how damaged you are psychologically, if you can come up with a strategy to eat a whole plant-free, SOS-free diet, you're going to lose the weight down to your optimum weight. We've seen that at the center for 35 years. So it doesn't mean if you have psychological issues, it's not more difficult. It certainly is. It's much easier if you've got an emotionally nourishing job and helpful people and a supportive mate and everybody around you is trying to encourage you and support you. And it's much more difficult if you're living with some asshole that's undermining your success or working in a job you hate around all kinds of temptations. It's not that the psychology doesn't play an important part, but it's not what determines the outcome. It's your action. So if you can come up with a strategy to implement the right action, you'll get the right outcome, regardless of whether or not you've got a you know, tough time of it. Now, is it true that people with those difficulties are less likely to be successful? Yes, it's true. But I've got patients that have the worst upbringings, the worst psychological trauma that you can even imagine, yet they manage to figure out a strategy to be successful with it. So I don't have a lot of um, uh, belief in the fact that, oh, there's nothing you can do. I think there's a lot you can do. But it's a lot of hard work, and you have to be prepared to pay the price. And the price is healthful living. And it may mean you have to control your environment better. It may mean you have to plan ahead. It may mean you have to put an inordinate amount of effort out. And for some people, that's too much. They just aren't willing to do that. And for them, they're not going to see successful. So we tend to focus on the people that are willing to do really anything that it takes so they can be happy. And unfortunately, if you want to be happy, one of the most important things is to get healthy. And if you want to be healthy, you have to live healthily. That means you have to control diet, sleep, and exercise. Can I ask all the patients that you have seen, because you, as you say, you've seen people who've had a really, really tough time. And I do think, you know, for many people, when your mental health isn't that well, it does make it a much more steeper hill to address your physical health. But No question. But... What do you think in all of your experience is like the, the thing that pushes, is it just being backed into a very severe health corner that pushes one? Oh, motivation. That's a really important issue. What is the motivating factor? So I've already identified what the main motivating factors for people are. It's pain, debility, and fear of death. So if you're fortunate enough to be suffering some from cataclysmic illness where you have a lot of pain and debility and fear of death, you are going to be a much better patient than the person that has some minor problem and isn't being driven by devastating pain, debility, and death. So we tend to work with a lot of people that have like autoimmune diseases where they want to like blow their brains out because life is so difficult. Those people are willing to do dangerous and radical things like eat well, exercise, go to bed on time, and they'll even fast. Whereas a person that has a minor problem 
you know, they want to lose a few pounds to fit in a different dress or whatever. They may, it may be overwhelming to them to think about making any changes. But you, get, you wait till you get motivated enough, and all of a sudden this doesn't look, you know, quite so impossible. Absolutely. I, I think people who've listened have talked to me before heard me talk about it took me four years when I first got multiple sclerosis I just had numbness in my face and it was it was easy to live with you know I could live with a bit of numbness but then in 2008 when I couldn't feel anything from the waist down ah. I was like all right <laughs> okay yeah but if you're like many of my patients you may actually see your cat you know devastating illness as actually a blessing I do it's forced you to do so many things right had you not had that illness you do not have the crap scared out of you you may not have been willing to make all the changes you're making. And as a consequence, something even worse than that might have been the devastating consequence down the road. So you don't wish something like MS on anybody. But, you know, fortunately, even something like multiple sclerosis, for people that adopt aggressive, healthy diet and lifestyles, often do very well. If you look at the swank data, you know, there's clearly a difference in people that are willing to address diet and lifestyle issues. Now, I know that many medical authorities will say, oh, diet doesn't matter. You eat whatever you want. But in my experience, it's the people that adopt healthful living that tend to have better outcomes, even with these really unfortunate diagnoses. Absolutely. My doctor said that exact thing to me. Do Eat whatever you want. There's no science to diet. Um, and I did that for four years and watched myself get sicker and sicker and fatter and fatter. And Enjoy yourself. Then I just stopped going to him. <laughs> Changed my diet. But you were talking about motivation. And it is really hard to see people that you love who are you starting to see the signs of chronic disease and aren't able to get the motivation to make that connection for themselves? It can be really, really difficult to, to, to witness that in your own family when you are someone who's on this path. And how do, you, how do you have any advice for people who are wanting to support their family members to eat healthier? Yeah, set a good example. The better you do and the less you say, the more effective you're going to be. It's just like treating with drugs. You can't go up to an alcoholic and say, hey, you know how your life really sucks? It's because you're a drunk. And they're not going to go, oh, it's the alcohol? I had no idea. Thank you so much. I'll never drink again. Thank you, thank you, thank you. No, they're going to tell you to mind your own effing business. That's what they're going to tell you to do. So the problem is you can't help people that don't want to be helped. The best way to get people to the point where they might be open to being helped is to set a shining example. Live a healthy life. It answer only the questions that are asked. Um, you know, be willing to share when they do ask. You know, thoughtful information in a non-judgmental way. And realize adopting a health-promoting diet in a world designed to make you fat, sick, and miserable is probably the most difficult thing people are ever going to be asked to do. This is really tough business, and that's why usually people won't do it until they're up against it and they feel like they have no choice. And even then, you'll see people. You know, they're smoking through their trade tubes. Okay. You know, so it's even devastating, debilitating illness that you're, you know, so excited about because you think you can help them uh, still may not work unless the person's motivated to make the change. And they have the personality characteristics necessary to be successful at making those changes. So I I think the best advice is, you know, practice, practice it. Don't preach it. Set a good example. Ask only what's asked of you. And, you know, if you want somebody to yell at them, have them call me. I'll talk to you for you. <laughs> Everyone, you have to call Dr. Goldhammer. I was going to ask you, when you, when you first switched to plant-based, because I haven't actually heard your story about how, you, how did you discover plant-based eating yourself? Yeah, I was very young. I was a very frustrated basketball player. I was being beaten by Dr. Lyle, our psychologist. 
And I was so desperate to beat him that I thought if I got healthier, I might be able to get an edge. I read a book by Herbert Shelton. He talked about diet and fasting. It made sense to me. So I decided to do an experiment that I would try this for 50 years and see if I could get good enough to beat Dr. Wilde. Now, the problem is it failed because he adopted the same diet. And here I am, 60 years old, and he's still beating me every time we play. So I, I wasn't able to get the edge on him. I still am working on it. And I've got six more years on my 50-year experiment, but so far it seems to be working pretty well. So even though I can't beat him in basketball, I still feel like I'm getting enough benefit that I, I think I might try to extend it for another 50 years. Excellent. I'm so glad that you're doing that. I'm, so, I'm sorry that you're not beating him at basketball. No, he's really good. <laughs> With on, on that subject, how have you, like, when you're looking around in your – in your peers and in your world, like how do you feel as like a you know a man in your sixties who's seemingly just from looking at you and hearing your story, you know, really thriving? And I know that my parents are in their sixties, and everyone around them is, has prostate cancer and diabetes and heart disease and high cholesterol and high blood pressure and all of these things. Like, is it difficult to be? A 60-year-old amongst a, a sea of 60-year-olds who are eating their standard American diet and having the standard American health problems as a result? Well, I'm fortunate because I work at the True North Health Center, so I'm amongst people, uh, many of which are actually older than I am, that are doing really well. So, you know, I have uh, fortunate to be associated with a lot of health-conscious people. So uh, I have to say, though, my mother, when she turned 92, and had outlived all 52 of her lifelong friends, she said, Alan, you need to tell your patients, make younger friends. And so, you know, I play basketball four times a week. Most of the people I play basketball would happen to be in their 20s, 30s, or maybe at the most 40s because, you know, that's who's still playing basketball. So um, I've taken her advice. I've tried to make associations with people that are fit and healthy regardless of their age. And, uh, you know, I see uh, – I know we went to a, a, a reunion of people we've been in high school with, Dr. Lyle and I, and you know we're both doing pretty well. And we saw a lot of these people we went to school with who were in our same age group, and we were both like, "Oh my God, look how old they got!" Because it's not that we haven't aged; we've aged. We're older, but we've aged a little bit more normally, and they've aged in a facilitated way. And that's the difference. That's why, if you look at smokers, you know, you look at their face; it's called smoker's face because they have premature wrinkling, which is. A wrinkle is nothing more than a, 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 a cross-linked collagen tissue. And so cigarette smoking, because the free radicals, speeds up the aging of the face. Well, it also speeds up the aging of the whole body. That Did you know that smoking actually protects many people from lung cancer? Yeah, it's true. Only 20% of smokers get lung cancer. 80% don't because they die of heart disease before they live long enough to grow their tumors. And so, you know, when you think about it, it's not just causing lung cancer, it's aging out the entire body. So is, is cigarettes the only source of free radicals? No, another source of free radicals is alcohol. That's why people get cirrhosis of the liver, essentially scar tissue of the liver from having peroxidized the toxic effect of alcohol, including red wine. So the bottom line is that alcohol and tobacco help age people prematurely. Well, so do free radicals that come from things like oils and heated fruits and fried foods. So what people are basically doing with their forks and knives and their cups and glasses is trying to prematurely age their body. And that's exactly what's going on. And that's why the average person spends 9.6 years debilitated and 17 years in poor health and sucks up tons of expenses in medical care, not to extend their life or reduce their all-cause mortality, but to manage the symptoms associated with poor lifestyle choices. 
Wow. I, that was, that was a lot, but it was so, I'm, I'm so, <laughs> that yeah, make younger friends. I have to tell my mum this because it's, 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 I can see that it's going to be so true for so many people on this way of living because people around us aren't making the switch fast enough. And I do feel younger than many, many of my peers because, you know, I'm turning 40 soon and I just feel like my energy levels are getting, well, they're getting more, if anything. I have probably too much, but I, you know, when I was in my 20s, I was sleeping all day. I was eating junk food. I was smoking. I felt terrible. I was in bed all the time. And now heading into 40 and I have more energy now than I did at 19 when I was heading into 20. That's for sure. Yeah, I think you can definitely affect the rate with which you age. You're going to age. You're going to die. Um, you know, the question isn't, are you going to die? You definitely are going to die. The question is, how well are you going to live in the time you have left? And, you know, if you're an average middle-aged person, you have somewhere between five and 700 months left to live. And so the question is, will you spend those um, months fully functional and vital, go to sleep one night and not wake up because you reached your genetic potential? Or will you spend the last years or decades lying around in some nursing home bed waiting for somebody to come and change your diaper? And the large determination of that will be the choices you make in terms of your diet and lifestyle. You obviously can't change genetics. You can't change, you know, the use and abuse that's happened in the past. But you can certainly take responsibility for the diet lifestyle changes you make today. And the good news is the body is very forgiving. You can take a person even with a horrific background. And if you do enough of the diet lifestyle stuff, oftentimes they have fabulous outcomes and do better than the people that didn't have those unfortunate, you know, diagnoses. Mm. I think that that's the case for many people as far as, you know, people can cruise along for a really long time. And my son, even at school, he says, but mom, those kids eat junk food and they're fa he's faster than me. And he eats meat, cheese, all these things. And he's faster than me at school. And trying to explain to a child that, you know, he's faster than you because his body's a different style than yours. And he, he trains harder than you. But he, that those foods aren't going to make him sick and overweight immediately. Well, the other thing is that what's good for short-term weight loss or short-term athletic performance isn't always good for long-term health and happiness. So, you know, if you want to get bigger faster and you inject anabolic steroids, you can get bigger. Your muscles get bigger, your testicles get smaller, and then you pay the price down the road. So, you know, you have to decide what you're going to define as success. If your definition of success is trying to be as happy a person as you can as much of the time as possible, then, you know, preserving your health is going to be an important component in that. You know, people who have compromised their health have a great deal of difficulty experiencing the overall balance of their life experiences is highly positive, which is essentially what happiness is. And so in order to be healthy, you have to be, you know, think short-term and long-term, and it's hard for children to do that. That's why they're so vulnerable to the pleasure trap and smoking and drinking and alcohol and short-term pleasure-seeking self-indulgent behavior. That's why sexual pro uh, promiscuity and, and drug use is so rampant, because it's easier to fall into the pleasure trap than to avoid it. So, you know, but I think hopefully with education and inspiration, people can be motivated to make more responsible decisions. And unfortunately, a lot of these benefits you don't see until you hit that fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, or even the ninth decade. So it's about delayed gratification. It's also why people have trouble saving for retirement. You know, a lot of people don't want to defer for the future. They want to live for the present. And so then they reach older uh, uh, adults and they don't have the reserves to carry them forward. Um, some people are very diligent about that, and then they, they reap the benefits, and then people tell them they're just lucky. Well, maybe, maybe not. True, and I think uh, uh, one of the reasons why I started this podcast was because people would say to 
me, they would look at me and I could tell that they would think maybe your MS was always going to be fine and it's nothing to do with the food, the radical food changes that you've made. And I, I just wanted to have such a huge body of evidence saying, no, it's not just me. It's now 108 people that are doing this. It isn't a one-off thing. If you make these choices, the outcome's repeatable. It's It happens over and over and over and over again. It is very inspiring, though, for people to hear. You know, if you say, well, this person was always healthy and they lived healthy and they're still healthy, it's like, okay, yeah, that's great. But to have a person that, you know, was facing, you know, really devastating consequences and was able to overcome that despite those pressures, yeah, it's very inspiring to people. And it's encouraging to those, despite the fact that maybe they've got some things going on that aren't very good right now. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a death sentence. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's all... Uh, doom and gloom. And so I think it's important for people to do that because it's hard to motivate, you know, to motivate yourself when you're feeling like crap to sacrifice, give up short-term pleasure-seeking behaviors, deal with the social consequences, you know, of living healthy. And the healthier you get, the harder it can be socially. The thinner you are, the more people are pissed off at you and your thin body and your perky smile. Makes them sick. And so they'll try to undermine your success oftentimes. And I think it's even harder uh, for women sometimes than men. You know, think about this. A woman loses 50 pounds and goes to work. The other women are not always supportive. It's like, you know, they don't always say, oh, we're so proud of you. You must have adopted a whole plant food diet. How can we be helpful? No, it's more like, oh, here she comes, that bitch. They know why you lost weight because you're a mate coaching whore. Whereas men have a little bit easier time because men lose 50 pounds. They go to work. The other men, well, they don't notice. And if they do notice, they don't care. So honestly, it is a little bit easier sometimes, I think, for males than females, you know, to, to deal with some of the social consequences of, of overweight and dietary changes. And, you know, maybe things are starting to, the playing fields are getting a little bit more level nowadays. But I think it is actually harder in my experience for women, even when they're successful. They get consequences even when they're successful. It's not all, you know, cheery and helpful. A lot of times they piss a lot of people off. I've had women tell me that they'll wear kind of baggy clothes and stuff not to, to uh, accent their weight changes because they were treated so poorly by some of their friends that felt like they were, you know, doing it to make them look bad. It's interesting because I had the, kind of the opposite when I lost when I lost a lot of weight. People were talking, but I found them talking so uncomfortable. So a bit similar to what you're talking about is them constantly saying, wow, you've lost so much weight. It was... A, it was it reminded me constantly that they were like beforehand, oh, my God, she's so fast, <laughs> you know. So every time they would say, wow, you've lost so much weight, I'd be like, oh, God, it's another person telling me how fat I was. Right. <laughs> and, well, and that would make me uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I think it's kind of a lose-lose situation for the person trying to get healthy. That they're, mm. you know, they're, most of their friends are not healthy since most people are not healthy. Two-thirds of people are overweight or obese. So when you get thinner, it's not like they're necessarily all happy for you. You know, it just makes them uncomfortable because you're reminding them of their own issues. Um, it's very much like alcoholics. When they quit drinking, sometimes they have to find new friends because their old friends that like to party get really uncomfortable because they're not drinking. They won't just leave them alone to not drink. They always have to bug them about it. And so sometimes when you've lost weight, people are like, oh, you're no fun anymore. You know, where are you going to get your protein from? It's not good to be a fanatic. You know, they're going to give you all kinds of nutrition advice now. Uh, whereas before, when you were living on Hostess Twinkies and, you know, highly processed foods, nobody was bothering you. But now you're eating fruits and vegetables. Everybody's worried about your nutrition. 
It's very, very true. I remember when I got down to, I was still classified as overweight and my my own mom kept saying, Doc, you don't want to get too thin, you'll look gaunt, you know, and I'm like, I'm still clinically overweight. It's okay to walk up and say, oh my God, you're thin as a rail. But do you ever walk up to people and say, oh my God, you're big as a barn. Give me that, give me that, you're going to blow up. So it's okay to criticize people for being thin or healthy, but it's not okay to criticize people for being overweight. We have a, like a, a reverse bias that, you know, it's, it's people who think nothing of saying, oh, my gosh, you're too thin. You should eat, eat something. But you don't walk up to people and say, oh, my God, are you going to stop eating or what? I think it's true. I, I hear your point. And I just heard an interview with um, James Corden talking about another late show, tonight show, late night host who was talking about what you're talking about. And James Corden was saying, and I agree that when as a child, my whole family kept telling me how I was overweight. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. You're overweight. And that does have the opposite impact on my Self doesn't motivate me to lose weight. It just makes me, my mental health worse and makes actually losing weight harder. For me personally and for many people, I think that's why it's difficult. But I agree. Like, they call me too skinny when you're 68 kilos and I'm still carrying an excess of 10, 15 kilos of weight that I, my body doesn't need to carry. Yeah, I would encourage people to cultivate friends that are. Uh, they care enough about them that regardless of whether they're thinner than they are or not, they can still be supportive of them. Even if they don't want to eat a greasy, fatty, slimy, dead, decaying flesh diet, they can tolerate the fact that they're choosing to eat a whole plant food diet. And on the other hand, I'd suggest that vegans not try to become born-again hygienists and shove their belief systems down everybody else's throat. Set a good example, you know, answer what's asked, you know, and keep your mouth shut, basically, and you'll have a whole lot less stress in your life. Yes. And it's taken me a long time to learn that. When I, when I first went vegan, of course, I was very, very, very annoying. And now I'm probably annoying without even knowing it, just by being, existing as a vegan. I'm sure I'm annoying many people, but I, but I do try to say it less, although I do say it to my mum and dad almost every day. Just, you know, maybe try a whole food plant-based diet. <laughs> it is hard when people you love are suffering needlessly and you have the information so sometimes you have to try different strategies, though. Sometimes what we'll do, for example, if, if your dad, you want to influence your dad, he's eating a meat-based diet. So he spends a lot of time in the restroom. So what I would suggest is take everything out of the restroom, but leave a copy of the pleasure trap on the back of the toilet. So there's nothing else in there for him to read while he's hanging out there waiting for the constipation issues to be dealt with. Or your mom, maybe what you do is you, you know, take her on a road trip and take a, a copy of the pleasure trap, the audio form, and play it in the car while you're driving so they have no choice but to hear it. And it's like a subtle little thing. I'm sure they wouldn't mind. And so maybe there's ways of getting people educated without actually directly, you know, confronting them in a negative way. And when they ask you, oh, my, you're looking much better, and you can say, oh, I'm just trying this, you know, different way of eating. And, you know, Dr. Lyle talks a, a lot of, in, in the book The Pleasure Trap about strategies for helping educate people without pissing them off. He's great at that. He's so good at that. And I found it really helpful reading that from me, even though, sorry, mum and dad, I'm still failing with you. You're too close to home. <laughs> You're too close. I loved The Pleasure Trap so much. And while we're on that, because I know that I don't want to take too much more of your time, I just wanted, for people who are listening, who are wanting to learn more, now we're in Australia, but we have most, half the people who listen to this podcast are in the United States. And many people in Australia are saving their pennies to go over to the States so they can go to the to True North? Well, apparently, because we've had a lot of people from Australia recently. Wow. I'm always, I'm always spooking you on this, on this show. 
I would love it if you could tell everyone where they can find you to work with you or they can find your books and or you find you on social media, all those things. Well, one thing we offer your listeners, which I think is a useful service, is if they were to go to our website at healthpromoting.com and complete what are called the registration forms, um, we will offer a no-cost phone conversation with me to discuss, you know, if they're candidates for fasting or what changes they might consider making that might help them. And I'll do my best to give them good advice and if possible, refer them uh, to people, if, if not to the Truman Health Center, maybe to some other place that might be closer to them. Unfortunately, we don't have any active uh, fasting facilities in Australia yet, but they're working on it. There are people that are making an attempt to try to get uh, places open. Um, and so that's a way for getting so get some advice. It doesn't cost them anything. It gives them a, ch- us a chance to try to provide hopefully positive feedback to people. Um, we also have a website, healthpromoting.com. And on that website, there's something called the Learning Channel. And all of the papers and studies we've had, there's something called True North TV, videos, lectures, webinars, are all freely available. There's also a website for our foundation called at fasting.org. Fasting.org. And that's a fasting compendium website. Everything you might want to know about fasting uh, is located on that, uh, on that site as well. We have a book called The Pleasure Trap. It's available on Audible, through Amazon, through I don't know what what the distribution networks are in Australia, but it's definitely available. Um, It's a disturbing book. It will not tell you what you want to hear, but it will tell you what you need to know to get and stay healthy. We have um, three vegan SOS-free cookbooks also available, the the, uh, health-promoting cookbook, the original, and then the Bravo, and the newest book, Bravo Express. Simple recipes, even simple enough I can do it, if you can imagine that. And so these are resources that make things, you know, a little bit easier. Um, in the United States, we have a couple food companies now, uh, Mama Says and Leafside, which are offering uh, SOS-free uh, food uh, through uh, delivery. They have uh, Leafside is a freeze-dried version, and uh, Mama Says is a ready to heat and eat or freeze. And you know that makes it easier when sometimes people don't have enough time or they're trying to travel. Uh, they, they can have uh, SOS-free versions of plant-based foods available. Uh, so I think things are improving, more options, more choices, more doctors. Uh, I know I'm getting invitations to speak to more groups, to more uh, physicians groups, uh, uh, continuing ed, the rest of it. So I think there's people starting to open up a little bit to, you know, the work that we're doing, the research that we're publishing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm optimistic that, uh, you know, our 1.5% of uh, vegetarians or rather vegans may increase. Uh, I'm hoping eventually that maybe as much as 2% of the population. Well, fingers, fingers crossed. Um, before we ha- hang up, could you please tell us, the listeners, your three top tips for anyone who is wanting to overcome food addiction or heal from chronic disease or begin a fasting program for themselves? What would be your three top tips? Well, health results from healthful living and healthful living involves diet, sleep, and exercise. So I would, one, adopt a health-promoting, plant-based, SOS-free diet. I would engage in regular exercise that builds flexibility, strength, and endurance. And I would remember that sleep is one of your most important activities. And so you want to go to bed early enough that you can wake spontaneously feeling refreshed. I need to learn that. Dr. Goldhammer, I'm a bad go to sleep too late and wake up not feeling well, refreshed, but I, today, I, I get refreshed. Start but I get day, refreshed. start working on disciplining yourself to get to bed on time. And if after you get enough sleep, you don't feel better as a consequence of improving those habits, you let me know and then I'll change the three things. 
All right. Great. Oh, okay, I'm going to go to bed early tonight. I'm going to go to bed early tonight. Okay. It's going to bed too late. After the kids go to bed, I've got little kids and I want to have that free time at the end to unwind and I stay up too late reading or go to the gym and then I'm wired because I've gone to the gym too late and then I... What time are you getting the kids to sleep? Well, I get the kids to sleep about between 7 and 8 o'clock. Well, let's get the kids to sleep on time too, which might be 7 o'clock and that way by the time you go to bed at 9 o'clock, you'll have had a couple hours to do what you need to do. Yeah. Yes. All right. I'm going to do that tonight. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so wonderful to speak to you. You're an absolutely, I was very amused, but I shouldn't be so funny. It was very funny, but not funny. Very serious, but it delivered in a way that made me laugh. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Okay. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Dr. Goldhammer, for coming on the show. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to you, meeting you, and hearing what you had to say about whole food, plant-based, SOS-free eating. And I know I've probably said this many times, but with every guest from me, I get a new way of viewing health, a new way of viewing a whole food, plant-based, salt, oil, sugar-free living, I get so much inspiration. I get so much information and my own journey on this roller coaster that is life becomes a little easier, a little less isolating and a little clearer in my head when you, you know, when you're peeling off all these layers of the onion that, it, that is the standard conditioned way of eating that we've been presented with for our majority of our lives. It it's it can be a slow process, and and some people in some episodes help rip that skin off a little bit quicker and a little bit easier in in our own journeys forward. And today's episode with Dr. Goldhammer was one of those episodes where you're just like, oh yes, all right. I have never heard it said so plainly and frankly, and it, it can be challenging to hear things like the things that Dr. Goldhammer said, because it said so plainly and frankly, and it can make us, our egos can get a bit triggered and we can feel a bit like, oh, like, oh, that was really hurtful and unnecessary. But I, I like, I like hearing cold, hard truths. And I really found it refreshing listening to Dr. Goldhammer today, share his cold, hard truths with, with me and all of you. So I hope you did too. And if you had any feelings or thoughts or questions about today's episode, you can leave a comment in the show notes. After the show notes, there's a comment section. I would love to hear from you if you found it interesting, what you took away from the episode, how what your thoughts are about the pleasure trap, about eating, about fasting, all of those things. I would love to hear from you and I will get back to everyone who writes in the comment section as soon as I possibly can. And if you're not yet a subscriber to this podcast, we are now everywhere that you can listen to podcasts. So please subscribe at the places where you listen to podcasts. I put out new episodes every Monday slash Tuesday Australian time, but Sunday slash Monday US time, everywhere else in the Northern Hemisphere. I um, also am now trying to get all the backlog of YouTube that, we've missed, that is missing. So there's only ever been 22 episodes over on YouTube, but now there is 20 
seven episodes and growing. So all of the old episodes will soon slowly be drizzling over to YouTube. As I said, I'm finally on it. It's happening. So if you haven't yet subscribed over at YouTube, please go over there and give me some love. I have like 119 subscribers over there. But I'm hoping that the ch- that channel will grow because a lot of people's eyes are on YouTube these days and eventually these audios will, there'll be some videos coming along too. So I would love to have you over there supporting me over on YouTube just because I want more people to get this message. And so the more people that are subscribing to the channel means that the more people that come across it might take, a bit, take it a bit more seriously and have a listen themselves. And you never know what might happen when that happens. Awesome whole food plant-based planet-saving, animal-saving things. So that's all I really have to say. If you're not yet a Patreon subscriber, member of my community helping me fund this podcast and feed my family, I if you love this podcast and you love this message, I would absolutely be honoured and thrilled if you could support me over at Patreon for as little as $5 a month. It helps with the cost of... The time it takes, the equipment it takes, the resources it takes to put out a podcast, the hosting, all of those things, it costs a lot to run this passion project um, and time away from my family and time away from paid employment. So if you value this podcast and want it to keep going, it would mean so much to me if you could invest a tiny $5 chai a month in keeping this podcast going. The link to Patreon and becoming a Patreon member is over in the show notes and there are tiers over there which you can check out. So levels if you want to pay $10, $20, each level you get a little bit more from me as far as ebooks, membership to my Facebook group, free coaching calls, all those kinds of things. So it just depends what you want to pay and what you would like to receive and how much you have to invest, obviously. Any, you know, if you can write to me and say, look, I can only afford to invest $1 a month, that I'll, I'll sort you out. We can figure it out. But yeah, any, as little as you can, it all helps. I feel like a person who's begging on the street, but I mean, I just think that it's super important to ask for help when you need help. And yeah, so that's what I'm doing. I'm trying my best to ask for help. And I hope that some of you listeners Um, might have the resources to offer that and help this podcast to keep going. So thank you so much, everyone who is already a Patreon member. Thank you all for subscribing, for sharing these podcasts in your social media platforms that that you're on and with your family and friends because stories like today's with Dr. Goldhammer are so super powerful. Dr. Goldhammer's interview today could help so many people make the switch and make the connection to a whole food plant-based diet. If you share this with your family and friends, I'm sure that they would get so much benefit out of hearing what he has to say. So thank you all for listening and thanks so much for being part of this whole food plant-based podcast and this whole food plant-based community. Thank you again. See you all next week. Bye. Bags are packed. Are you ready to go? This time tomorrow we'll be on the road. Riding with you in the sunnier day